Amen, amen. Uh, that's one of the things we love to do here at the Church 1122 is celebrate uh, life change. Uh, my name is Ryan Stone. If we haven't met yet, I'm one of the teaching pastors uh, here at the Church 1122. I get the honor and privilege to spend most of my weekends um, at Bay Meadows, and I guess technically I'm there right now. Uh, and so uh, we're really excited. We're going to be digging into uh, week eight of this study of Joshua. And uh, we've been digging through verse by verse. Before we dig in, though, we got a little bit of family business to handle. And uh, I, I want to introduce to you uh, the newest uh, child of the Church of 1122, uh, our kids minister, uh, James Hall, uh, this past Tuesday had a, uh, his first son. It's his second child, first son. And there's a picture coming up on the screen because if I don't show you the picture, you won't clap. And uh, that's JJ, uh, Julian James Hall. And right next to JJ is his sister, uh, Logan. And uh, I actually got the opportunity 19 months ago to introduce you to Logan, right? So they have a 19-month-old, a newborn. You should just pray and fast for them. And uh, it's James and Stephanie Hall. James is our, our kids' minister. And like I said, uh, Jay, Julian James is going to go by JJ, which is great because it sounds like the, uh, the beginning of a great uh, lineup. Ladies and gentlemen, at eight pounds, five ounces, height of 21 inches and three quarters, starting at point guard, JJ Hall. So I just want to introduce you to them and uh, just be praying for the Halls. And uh, with that being said, let's dig in. Let's do what we've come to do today. I need you to turn to Joshua chapter 20. Scroll there, uh, whatever you got to do to get there. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in front of you, uh, and it's our gift to you. We're in Joshua 20. Now, let me do a little bit of cliff noting for you, right? Some of you are like, I love that. That's, my, that's how I got through high school, right? Um, so we ended last week with Joshua chapter 10, and Pastor Joby talked to us about how Joshua prayed that the sun would stand still, <clears throat> And it did. The sun stood still. Like Joshua had this big, audacious prayer. And we talked about praying and prayers of a righteous man. And we had an amazing service last week of healing and asking God to do big, audacious things uh, for us and in us and through us. And this week we're in Joshua 20. So from 11 to 19, kind of the cliff notes is this. Uh, Israel conquered all of the promised land. And then Israel divided up the promised land amongst all the tribes of Israel. And then we get to chapter 20. And 21, and it's this really cool picture of God creating the, the Levite cities or the cities of the priest. And what God does is he put these Levite cities all throughout Israel so he can kind of symbolically declare, I'm going to dwell amongst my people. And so for the first time in the history of Israel, they are an established nation. They're an established, they have like walls on their houses. They've been in tents for 40 years and now their houses have brick and mortar. And God says, I'm going to dwell amongst you. And so that's where we pick it up in Joshua chapter 20. Let's go. Here we go. Verse one. Then the Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge for which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. Now, I, I need to do a little work for us and, and lay a little historical foundation for us as we dig into chapter 20. Um, if not, we're going to be a little bit confused about what some of these words mean. And there's two specific words I'm just going to explain for you in a second. If you're a Bible nerd, lean in. If you're not, then just please pay attention long enough to know what I'm trying to say, right? 
And uh, here's for you Bible nerds, there's two words for all of us, these two words, cities of refuge and the avenger of blood. So what happens in Exodus is that Israel, the book of Exodus, Israel is leaving Egypt. And it's the story of Israel finding their freedom. And as we get to the end of Exodus and into the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, God begins to lay out his law for this new nation, this new people that is his. And in Exodus chapter 21, for the first time, we hear this idea of what's going to be called the cities of refuge. Exodus chapter 21, verse 12 says this, as God is laying out the law, he says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. In other words, what God's saying in Exodus, he's going to say it again in Numbers 35 and in Deuteronomy 4 and in Deuteronomy 19. God's going to lay out this law that if anyone kills someone else, then the price, the punishment is a capital offense. So if there is a premeditated homicide or aggravated manslaughter, that what God says is that it's a life for a life. And then in verse 13, he goes, but if it's involuntary, if it's an accident, then it's still a big deal. Like any time a human life is lost, it is a big deal. Why? Well, Genesis tells us that that man was made in the image of God. Like every life matters. Every life counts. It's why the church spends so much energy being pro-life because what we declare is that every, every single human being ever formed is formed in the image of God. And so God says in Exodus 21, if you kill someone on purpose, the punishment for that is a capital offense. It is a life for a life. But it is a, if it is an accident, then what God says he's going to do is lay out these cities of refuge because you're still guilty It's still the punishment is a life for a life. A life was spilled. It's still a big deal. But instead of God punishing the person who accidentally took life, God is going to give them a city of refuge, a place that they can flee to, that they can find protection. The other word I need to just get us on board with here before we keep moving is this idea of avenger of blood. Now, this is not a Marvel character, right? It's not a comic book character. The avenger of blood comes from this concept. The the Hebrew word is goel hadam. And the word goel means uh, redeemer or avenger. And there's two different lanes or two different ways the word goel is used in the Old Testament. The, The more romantic version of the redeemer is what we call the kinsman redeemer. And if you know the story of the book of Ruth, there's this romantic love story uh, where Ruth becomes a widow, and then uh, this, guy, this man named Boaz becomes her kinsman redeemer, that he comes and marries Ruth and provides for her and protects her as a widow. He ushers her into his house, and she becomes his bride. He is the redeemer of the widow. Now, this is the other use of the word goel hadam, which means the avenger of blood, which means this, if you were to kill my brother and I was the Goel Hadam of my family, that I have the legal right to find you, to put you on trial, to take you outside the city and have you stoned, right? And not like an elbow for me, like real stones, right? So that, that would be a legal job in the nation of Israel. It's called the Avenger of Blood, the Goel Hadam. So, so what's, what's happening here and what we need to realize is a few things. One, one, God has a high, high view of the sanctity of life. 
that if you were to kill someone on purpose, it was punishable by death. And if you were to kill someone on accident, because God has such a high view of life, it was still a problem, but God was going to solve and give protection. The second thing that we've got to understand is that it is a life for a life punishment. That the only way to avenge the death of someone is the death of another person. It is a life for life offense. And then the last thing we need to see before we move on to the rest of the chapter is this. Is that the fact that God set refuge up in his plan before he ever even gave Israel the land declares a ton about the heart of God. Like before God even gave Israel the promised land, in fact, in fact, years before it, God tells Moses that when you get the promised land, I want to provide refuge and protection for my people. And as we dig in today, and we're going to talk about being the city of refuge and, and what does it look like if the church becomes the city of refuge, what I want you to hear over and over again, especially if you walked in here broken and hurt, is that God provided refuge for us before we even knew we needed it because he loves us that much. Verse 4, he shall flee to one of the cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. They shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. So this offender would come to the city of refuge. There were six of them throughout all of Israel. He would come to the gates, the town square, if you will. He would tell the elders, here's what happened. I accidentally killed my friend. We were building a house. I dropped a stone to him. He wasn't strong enough to carry it. It fell on his head. He's dead. I didn't mean to, uh, right? And I'm here. And what would happen is, is that the elders would assume his innocence and invite him into the city and give him a place to stay and give him food. Because here's the truth. When people flee, they don't bring anything with them. So he would come with the clothes on his back and the elders would welcome him into the city, give him a place to live, give him food and provide for him. And as I read this text, I just think about the citizens of that city. Just imagine you and your family have been traveling nomads through the desert for like 40 years. And then you have this season of war where you're, all the men are just attacking and conquering nations. And then God finally gives you a home. And then guess what? Your home is not just your home, but your home, you now live in the city of refuge, meaning every time somebody accidentally kills someone, they're coming to your town, and it's your city's job to provide for them, to feed them, to give them a room, right? I mean, think about it. You just go home. Hey, Martha, this is Ted. He accidentally killed his neighbor. He'll be living with us now. Like, it's just, it's just kind of an uncomfortable situation. And I just think about these citizens. They could have complained. Like, God, why would you give us this responsibility? Or, and probably what they really did was this, is they realized, you know what? God has blessed us so much. I think God's blessed me to be a blessing. Like the citizens of the cities of refuge, to survive in that city, you had to adopt the mentality that God has blessed us so richly so that we can richly bless others. You see, they were nomads in tents, and now they had this home with this walled, fortified city, and it was such a safe place that people would flock to their city for safety. And these, these citizens had to adapt this mentality of God has blessed me richly so that I can richly bless others. As I was reading this text this week, I began to just think about the, what is the implications to the church. Can I just read the scripture again? And instead of the word city, I'm just going to put the word church in. 
I want you to hear it this way. And, and he, the offender, should flee to one of these churches and he should stand at the entrance of the church and explain his case to the elders of that church and they shall take him into the church and give him a place and he shall remain with them. You see, to survive as a citizen, you had to realize God bless me to bless others. To be an active part of 1122, to be a part of this family, you have to have the mentality that God has richly blessed me so that we can bless others. Like the reason this church exists, we are a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus. Meaning this, every single time we open the doors, at every single location, at every single time we gather to worship and we open the doors wide open, what we're saying is this, is that if you can get here, if you're broken, if you're hurt, we have a place for you. That Some of you walked in this morning going, I'm jacked up, and here's what I want you to do. Just look to your left, look to your right. You are amongst great company, right? You blend in well. And in fact, if you're like, I ain't jacked up, I got it all together. Well, just wait, brother. All right, it's coming. Here's the deal. We are a group of broken people who need a savior. And as I was reading this scripture and preparing, sometimes the Lord kind of, kind of begins to stir my spirit and goes, hey, you're going to have to rebuke. You're going to have to teach. You're going to have to tell some people to repent. And as I was reading this text, the Lord just said, encourage the church. Why? Because church, I think we're getting this one right. I get asked all the time, we get asked all the time at conferences, how's your church growing? Like it's growing rapidly, fast, and how's it growing? And, and, and you know, the truth is, that some of it is the preaching, right? I tell them there's this guy named Pastor Joby, he's pretty good. The other guy is amazing and humble. Like it's his best quality, all right? No, really, I mean, we have, Pastor Joby is an amazing teacher. And we have an amazing worship, and, and our kids, our new gen is, is uh, awesome. I don't even have words for how awesome it is. And our disciple groups are great. But here's what I think. Here's why I think God is growing this church the way he's growing this church. Because we have realized that God has blessed us to be a blessing. That God has brought us out of death to life so that we could go back and rescue those in need. That what we realize is that we just get together on, on a Sunday morning, on a Thursday night, on a Sunday night. We just gather as the saints and we get in the same room and realize, you know what? We all are in desperate need of a Savior. And church, I just want to encourage you to continue to be the church that loves the least of these. And if you're in this room, if you're, if you're in any of our rooms, any of our venues, and you're sitting and you're going, I'm broken. Here's what I want you to hear. 1122 expects nothing from you. We only expect things for you. It is the role and the responsibility of this church to love the broken. I'm watching this mini-series. I watch it a lot. It's one of my favorites. It's called Band of Brothers, right? If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It'll actually increase your faith. You'll become a better Christian. Um, you read the Bible, watch Band of Brothers. It's an incredible discipleship tool, right? <clears throat> um, so Band of Brothers is about this group of men that are waging and, and going through war. And I love it as you watch it. They're, they're like this whole battalion has like one medic. But here's how I can tell who the medic is. It's whoever hadn't been shot. Like you go in a scene and there's bullets flying. Whoever hasn't been shot assumes the role of a caregiver. And here's the truth about church. If you're healthy, you're a caregiver. If you're hurt, you got to wave the flag. If you're healthy, you should be a caregiver. You should be serving and loving the, the, the broken. And, when, and if you're hurt and broken, you got to wave your flag. That's what the church is all about is being one of those two people always either helping the Lord heal or being healed by the Lord. Verse five, if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly. 
and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is the high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and to his own home, to the town from which he fled. This was the, the city's job was this. The city's job was to stand between the accuser and the offender. And here's what you need to know. Both the accuser and the offender had very, very legitimate arguments. What do you mean? Well, the accuser showed up, the avenger of blood, the Goel Hadam, he shows up and goes, that guy killed my relative. All right? Legitimate argument. And the avenger of blood had a legal status and a legal right to come and revenge the blood. So the accuser would stand up. He, he, he killed my relative. I saw him. There's no way he can say he did not kill my relative. And legally, in the court system, it would have been great argument. And then you had the offender going, you know what, you're right. I did kill your relative, but I didn't do it on purpose. I've never had an evil thought about your relative. In fact, your relative and I are really good friends, and it was an accident. Here's the truth. The avenger and the offender both had legitimate arguments. They were both right. And the job of the city was to step in and provide protection, to step in between the accuser and the offender. And it's the job of the church today to do the same thing. To stand in between the, accu the accusations of the enemy and the excuses of the offender. And here's the truth. Our enemy, the Satan, like he's a real legitimate enemy, comes against us with real legitimate arguments. Like when the enemy shows up and says, you know what, you don't deserve God's love. You know what, you're not good enough. You know what, your decisions got you here. Can I just be honest with you? Those are actually legitimate, truthful statements. Like you, you, we do not deserve God's love. But for some reason, God chooses to love us anyway. And, and the truth with the enemy goes, you can't do anything good. It's right. The Bible actually says our best efforts apart from the cross are just filthy rags. And when the enemy shows up and goes, you know what, you got yourself here, he's probably right. If you look back at the path of your life, the sins and decisions we make really put us in a bad spot. The enemy has legitimate arguments. And the offender, we have legitimate excuses. Of course I'm walking down that path. If you knew my story, if you knew how awful my parents were at loving me as a child, if you just knew how bad my circumstances are, if you just knew that all I was trying to do was have a good time and a good time became an addiction, you really wouldn't have that much, you wouldn't hate me. And so we, the church's job is to stand between the truthful accusations of the enemy and the excuses of the offender and stand in and go, you know what, Satan is right. We don't deserve God's love. And you are right, you've had it really, really bad. But God who is rich in mercy loves us anyway. The God who's rich in mercy has provided for us an opportunity to bring all of our excuses to the table and go, God, I, I have all of these good reasons why I have jacked up my life and why things have fallen apart. And it's the church's job to stand between the enemy and the offender and go, both are true, but the cross is truer. Both are legit. But Jesus on the cross has solved, has dealt with all the accusations, and has forgiven all of the offenses. Refuge is not the eradication of judgment or the removal of our wrongdoing. Let me say that again. Refuge is not the eradication of judgment or the removal of our wrongdoing. It is actually the recognition that the accusation is true and my offense is far worse than I'm willing to admit. 
Like, let's just be honest. When we get to the point of like confessing our offenses, we never get to the point where you go, you know what? Because of my sins, Christ had to die on the cross. Like we usually get to this point of where we get to the point of confession and we get to the point of really just going, here's the junk in my life. And we get right there where we get to the point where we're going to own it. And then we go, but it's not really my fault. It's somebody else's fault. And so refuge is not this removal of wrongdoing. Refuge is not the removal of judgment. If you look at the text, the the city of refuge, it says this, verse 6, he should remain there in the city until he has gone before the congregation for judgment. See, judgment is still happening, and yet the city's job is to step in and provide protection that God, who is rich in mercy, gives us the church to stand with us in the midst of consequences, in the midst of the pain of our decisions and the brokenness of our world. Refuge is not the removal of consequences. Refuge is the removal of guilt. Let me say that again. Refuge is not the removal of consequences. It's the removal of guilt. If I called the IRS up and said, hey, IRS, how are you guys doing today? They'd probably go, right? That's just how I think they talk, right? Hey, IRS, if I call them and say, you know what? I have been cheating on my taxes for like a decade now, and I just feel so guilty, and can I just tell you guys that? They're going to go, yes, but my, my, my sin, my, my wrongdoing still have consequences because guess what they want? They still want their money, Right? Hey, IRS, it removes the consequences, but not the guilt. I'm counseling this young lady uh, that attends 1122, and we were sitting across from each other this this week eating lunch, and, and she said, Ryan, I just want the pain and the hurt in my life to just disappear. And in this moment, the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and said, just pastor and love her with kind words. And so I said, great, I want it to, I want it to mis- disappear too, but I don't think it is. And she looked at me like, I don't think the pastor is supposed to tell me the pain's still here, right? She was looking for me to say, it's all going to get better. And, and I think it is. But here's the truth. This young lady, she, she was in the middle of sin six, seven, eight years ago that she was even ignorant to being sin. And recently God opened her eyes and she began to confess these sins. And God has completely removed any guilt and any condemnation. But the truth is that every single sin we commit has consequences. And refuge deals with the guilt, but sometimes leaves the consequences. You see, sometimes God leaves pain in our life because it's the only way to get us to change. Like some of you have got friends in your life and family in your life that you're looking at their life going, do you not see it? This is a train wreck waiting to happen. And the truth is they don't see it because they don't feel any pain. And without the pain, it takes pain to get us a desire to change. And sometimes the Lord leaves pain in our life to lead us to restoration. You see, this, this person, this offender in the text, they were in exile until the high priest died. So if you like accidentally killed someone when there's an old high priest, your exile was short. If you like killed someone at the beginning of a high priest's reign, your exile was long. And so this person would find themselves in pain, separated from their family, separated from everything they knew. And sometimes I think God goes, hey, you know what? That pain is good. Because see, without exile, this person would not have had to lean into the dependency and lean into the nature of Jesus. And so some of you are walking, some of us are walking through pain, and you're going, God, would you just remove this pain? And God's going, no, I'm not going to remove that pain because that pain is drawing you to me. See, sometimes God lets us make decisions that bring pain, and sometimes God lets pain make decisions for us that bring us to him. It's true. And some of you, you you are in some exile, and you don't want to be there, but it's good for you. 
right? Some of you jacked your marriage up. Some of you jacked your dating life up so bad that God is trying to force you into exile of singleness and you're fighting him with everything you are and God's going, I'm trying to take you here to heal you. Some of you, the, the nightlife has become so consuming that God is trying to exile you from some friends. He's trying to exile you from some places that just lead you down a path that's going to destroy you. And you do not want to be in exile, but God's going, I'm trying to remove you from the bars so that you would find dependency on Jesus. Some of us, some of us, some of you some are struggling so much with pornography that what God's going to try to push you in is to an, into an exile of technology. You need to get rid of the computer. You need to get rid of the smartphone. You need to get a flu- phone and some snail mail, and it's going to absolutely just slow your life down, but it may actually save your soul. And some of us, you're, you're just so jealous and envious that what God needs to put you in is an exile from Pinterest, like an exile from HDTV. And we laugh, and it's funny, but the truth is that we begin to fill our minds and our eyes with things that we want to the point that we miss the only thing we need. And some of us, Some of us, God is trying to push us into an exile of solitude and silence because the noise in our life is so loud that we cannot hear the whispers of the one who loves us most. You see, every Lent, I turn sports radio off in my car. I don't listen to it anymore. I turn just silence in my car. And I'll tell you what, a a minute drive to the gas station kills me. I don't know if you know this about me, but I like noise. I like people. Right? Sometimes I just turn noise on. Like if I'm cleaning the house, I turn the TV on. Why? Because I don't want to feel alone, right? <laughs> and here's what the Lord begins to do in that exile of silence. He begins to lean in and speak things to me that makes me uncomfortable. Things that with noise I don't have to deal with. See, sometimes pain in our lives is actually the Lord going, let go of the world. Let go of the world. If we are clinging to the things of this world, we have no hands left to cling to the king of this world. Can I say that again? If we are clinging and embracing the created, if we are just latching on to the created, to the things of this world, we have no room left in our hands to grab a hold of the king of the world, to grab a hold of the creator of the world. Some of the reasons that we come in here broken and hurt and needing care is that we have clung so hard to the things of this world that are fleeting and cannot fulfill that we do not have the room to wave the white flag and reach our arms up to a heaven. Heavenly Father who desperately wants to come give us refuge. You see, pain is actually the Lord's blessing on us. That sometimes in the midst of pain, it will draw us to the church of refuge. And in the mercy of the Lord drawing us to the church of refuge, he would meet us in this place and go, you see all those things in the world, you, you don't even need them. The one thing we need is the one thing that is bigger than this world. Verse 7. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Can they just put Hebron? Like, why do you got to get the tongue twister in there? Just put Hebron. In the hill country of Judah and beyond Jordan, east of the Jericho, they anointed uh, Bazir in the wilderness of the tableland and the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth in Gilead and the tribe of Gad, Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. Now, there were six cities in there. There was also rivers and people, and you don't know which one's which. It doesn't really matter, right? <clears throat> Here's the cool thing. God tells Moses back in Exodus, put six cities. I want you to take six cities and put them throughout all of Israel. 
And they do that, and here's, a, here's just how good and sovereign God is. You could not be anywhere in the country of Israel and not be more than a day away from a city of refuge. No matter where you're at, the cities of refuge were always within one's day's travel. It's as if God's going, you're going to need this, and I'm going to put it close enough to you that when you need it, you can come get it. Just a rule of thumb I live by, you should live by this too. You should never be more than a phone call away from someone who can help you before you need it. Like you should never be more than a phone call or a text message away from a help, SOS, I'm drowning, I need help here. And if you're more than a phone call away from someone who would legitimately come in to step into your world and help, you need to get that done before you need it. It's like going to a foreign country and not knowing where anything's at until a riot breaks out. And you're like, well, where's the hospital? I don't know. It's too late. You're in a foreign country in need. You should not be more than a day away from someone who can help you. You should not be more than a phone call or a text message. And here's the truth. We, we take that, that heartbeat of care uh, so literally here at the church 1122. Um, we have this mentality, I can't, we can. Like, I can't. None of our pastors can fully care for every single person in our church. But we, the body of Christ, can care for one another. And in fact, we take it so seriously. There are six ways, six ways you can get care before you even leave any of our locations today. Six. Like here's what we believe. If we could just get the doors open and just get people in and we could just find refuge in the Lord, then we should be able to, as the church of refuge, find ways to care for them. Here's the six ways. Number one, in every location, we have a thing in the back of the room called the Connect Center. Right? If you need help at any point, if you need care, all you got to do is walk back to the Connect Center and go, I need to connect. I need help. The second way is this. In front of you is a respond card where you can fill out your prayer needs. You can write, I need care. I need help. You can put it in a giving box. The third way is this. You can go on a website or an app and fill out a talk to a care team member form. And guess what? One of our care team members will call you and talk to you. The fourth way that you can get help, you come to the altar at the end of the service. At the end of the service, in every single venue, every single location, we have pastors and staff and elders and deacons and a care team that are just sitting down here with name tags and their names on it. So all you got to do is walk up and go, fill in the blank. Your name is, hey, I need care. And they are trained to immediately pray for you and care for you. The fifth way is this. It's called the needs board. In the lobby of both San Pablo and Bay Meadows, there's a needs board where you can go and write, I have a need. Acts tells us that the church took care of each other's needs. I have a need. You can put that on the needs board. The sixth way that you can get care is this. This is the hard copy, but you can get this on the website or the app. It's called our needs resource guide. And you can, I mean, if you have a need, uh, yo, I'll solve it. Right here in the needs guide, there's a hundred different ways to get needs met. We are serious about the fact that you should not be more than a phone call away from help. Because we, we are blessed to be a blessing. Now, the seventh way to do this is actually, in my opinion, the best way to get care. It's actually the preventative measure of getting care. It's called the disciple group. Now, when we were building this church and, and launching this church and trying to figure out how this church was going to um, exist and function, one of the things that was fundamental is that as this church grew bigger, that at the same time it would grow smaller. That as, as God continued to bring people to surrender their life to Jesus, that the church would grow smaller. And so from, from day one, we built disciple groups to be the front line of care for this church. So when people ask me, hey, I need help, my first question is, well, what, whose disciple group are you in? How can I help you get connected to your disciple group leader? 
So not only are disciple groups the first line of care, but disciple groups are the community in which we are all designed and long for. It's also the place that we take the weekend message and take the sermon and we wrestle out what we have, the action steps with it together. And here's what I want you to do. Go ahead, everybody pull your cell phone out real quick. Just do this real quick. Can I pull my cell phone out? Yeah, half of you are watching Facebook right now. Pay attention, right? Pull your cell phone out real quick. Here's what I want you to do. If you are currently in a disciple group, I want you to text your disciple group leader and say, hey, thank you so much for leading a disciple group. I know it causes a lot of stress. I'm probably the one that causes stress, right? Just text it. If you're not in a disciple group, I want you to take your phone out right now. I want to give you an easy on-ramp to join a disciple group. You can, we're going to put this on the screen. You're going to text coe22.disciple to 29 Two nine, two nine, and what we're doing starting tomorrow night, Monday night, we are launching what's called a, a disciple group experience for three weeks. We're going to host it at our Bay Meadows location. It's central to uh, most of the people coming from around the, around town. We're going to host these things called disciple group experience for three weeks. It's actually an opportunity for you uh, to just taste and see what a disciple group experience is going to be like. I'm going to be there tomorrow night because it's that big of a deal that we're going, to, we're going to be there and serve you guys. Text that number. Join a disciple group because here's the truth. You should never be more than a phone call away. And if you're in a disciple group, a disciple group is the front line of care. That before you even need it, God has already given you relationships. Verse 9. And these were the cities designated for all the people of Israel, for the strangers sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without a tent could flee there so that he may not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Don't, don't miss that, verse 9. All the people of Israel and for the sojourner. What does that mean? It means that God set these places of refuge up for all people. That all people were welcome to flee to this place of refuge. You didn't have to be a Jew. You didn't have to be a good Jew. You didn't, have, you didn't have to be Jewish. You could just be a stranger just sojourning through the land. And God said, the refuge is open for everybody. Now, that's part of us being a movement for all people. And we've had people come in here and go, I'm broken, and I'm hurt, and I need help. And, oh, you should just know I'm an atheist. That's fine. I believe God is wooing you even though you don't believe God exists. What I believe is this, that we are a place for all people, no matter what your story is, to come and find refuge. Here's the big idea. In his mercy, in his mercy, God created refuge for all people before we even knew it. Before we even knew we had a need for it in his mercy. And mercy simply means this. Mercy is when God withholds from us what we truly deserve. That in his mercy, God has given all of us refuge before we even knew we needed it. That is why the church exists to be a place for broken people to flee to. That the church exists even before we know we need it. And in his grace, God provided salvation we could never achieve on our own. Mercy is this, withholding from us what we deserve. Grace is giving to, giving to us what we could never earn on our own. So in his mercy, God gave us the church to be a place that we could find refuge. And in his grace, God gave us his very own son to die on the cross to give us salvation in which we could not achieve on our own. Romans 5, 8 says it this way, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the truth about every single one, everybody, anybody listening to this message, Christ died for you before you even knew you needed it. Like literally 2,000 years ago, he died before you were even born. 
And so God loved us so much that he gave us mercy and does not give us what we deserve. Here's what we deserve. Romans says this, the wages of our sin is death. The moment we sin, the moment we uh, do anything against the perfect and holy will of God, what we deserve in that moment is death. And God actually gives us mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve, and then he gives us grace. Instead of giving us death, he offers us life through the cross. He offers us life. So here's the truth. Mercy without grace is just a prolonging of justice. What do you mean? Mercy, mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve, grace is when God gives us what we could not earn. Judgment or justice is when God gives us exactly what we earn. So take my, my children, for example. I have a four-year-old named Emery, and she's an angel 87% of the time. 13% of the time, oh my goodness, right? And so here's the deal. Let's just say we're at Chick-fil-A, and we're enjoying some, some holy chicken nuggets, because I believe in heaven Chick-fil-A's exist. And, um, and so let's just say we're at Chick-fil-A, and we're eating, and let's just say my four-year-old begins to just uh, disrespect her mother. And I do what I'm supposed to do. I quote to her Exodus. The Bible says, honor your father and your mother, that this is the first law that comes with a promise that you shall live prosperous. In other words, you talk back to mom, she might kill you, right? And so she begins to talk back to mom. Mercy, what, what she deserves in that moment is a good old-fashioned whooping. And some of you are like, I don't know if he can whoop his kids. I'll whoop your kids too, right? And so here's the deal. Uh, there, what, what Emery deserves in that moment is she deserves justice. She deserves a whooping because she is talking back to her mother, not respecting her mother. Now, mercy is when I go, you know what, I'm not going to whoop you right now. I'm going to whoop you later. See, mercy without grace is just the prolonging of justice, right? So if she's going to get a spanking later, here's what grace looks like. I'm not going to whoop you right now. I'm not going to whoop you later. In fact, we are going to go get ice cream because I want you to know what grace is all about. She does not deserve grace. She cannot earn ice cream. She, has, she deserves a whooping, and what she gets is forgiveness and lavished upon with love. Now, I tell you that because it's a true life story because my four-year-old, every time she gets in trouble, she goes, Daddy, didn't God give us grace? Like immediately, as soon as she gets in trouble, she's like, how do I get out of this? Here's the truth. Mercy without grace is a prolonging of judgment. So in his mercy, God gives us the church, and in his grace, God gives us his son on the cross. He doesn't just prolong justice. God actually steps in and takes justice on himself. Don't miss verse 6, and he shall remain, the offender shall remain in the city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is the high priest. Then the manslayer may return to his own town. You see, atonement and forgiveness doesn't take place until the high priest dies. Why? Numbers 35 says that you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death that he should be put to death. You see, the manslayer had committed a crime that was offensive to God. He killed another person. And the manslayer could not go free until the justice, until the penalty of death was paid. And the high priest who represented the entire Old Testament Levitical law, when the high priest died, the death of the high priest covered every sin of the manslayer. So you cannot miss the gospel here. The gospel message is this, it's true. The city could only provide refuge. The city could only provide a place of mercy. Only the death of the high priest could provide salvation. Only the death of the high priest could provide grace. It's just the same is true here in the church. The church cannot save you. 
The church cannot save you. And that's a theological declaration that may uh, rub, rub against some of the, 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 the churches that you grew up in that said the church will save you, be good enough, attend enough, do enough of this, do enough of that. The church cannot save you. The church can only be a refuge for you to come and find the only one who can save you. The church 1122 cannot save you. Only Jesus can. The church of 1122 does not exist for the name of 1122. The church of 1122 exists and only exists for the name of Jesus Christ. You see, we are here to point to Jesus over and over again because you and I need a high priest to atone for our sins. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, that since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus The Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. In other words, Jesus, who was fully God, took on flesh and dwelt among us and was tempted by every sin we are, and yet in his godliness and his perfection did not sin, and his sacrifice for us covered all of our sins. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that, may we, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. In other words, just like Joshua 20, you and I stand with sin. We stand with guilt. And the only thing that can take our guilt away and grant us freedom is the death of the high priest. And our high priest, his name is Jesus. And we don't need another high priest. We have the death of one who was perfect. And through his death gives us mercy, gives us refuge, and removes from us what we deserve. And through his death gives us salvation that gives to us life that we could not earn on our own. The writer of Hebrews continues in chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made of hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats or calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, the sprinkling of a defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? What do you mean? Here's what I mean. The entire Old Testament was built off this idea that when you sinned, you would bring a, a particular sacrifice to cover your sin. Here's the problem with that. You take goats, you take bulls, and you sacrifice over and over and over again. And what do you have to do the next year? Sacrifice over and over and over again. But Christ who came was, who was the perfect sacrifice. His death not only purified our flesh, but his death on the cross actually moves us from death to life. It's not just the covering of our sins. It is the redemption and regeneration of our dead hearts that what Christ did was greater than what the Old Testament could do. Verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Just like Joshua chapter 20 Verse 6, that the high priest's death covers, covers the sins and transgressions. Verse 27, 
And just as, the, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. As we close and as we wrap this up, I just want to bring us back to this central truth that God in his mercy gave us the church to be a place of refuge, to be a place that we can come running to broken. But the church cannot save you. The church cannot redeem you. Your, your attendance and your behavior, all it does is can mask this deep need that your dead heart become alive. The church, the church can come around you and support you and hold you up, but what we really need is not to be held up. What we really need is to be brought to life. See, Hebrews says this, it is appointed for man to die once. The death rate is hovering right around 100%. It's true. And then after death comes judgment, to which every one of us, we, we immediately respond to, what are you judging me for? Like, why would you judge me? The Bible says I'm going, to be, I'm going to die and I'm going to be judged. Why would you judge me? Well, we're all going to be judged based upon our sin. And our sin is this. It's simply anything we have done against the will of a perfect and holy God. So here's, here's what it means. It means every sin you meant to do. And if you just think about the college spring break, you're already done. You've hung yourself. If you just think about it, just look through your life and go, what are the things I meant to do that I know are wrong? But it doesn't just stop there. It also covers the things you neglected to do. The times where you knew this is the right thing and I'm not going to do it. And it also covers the things you were ignorant you even did. See, sin is anything we did on purpose, anything we neglected to do, or anything we were ignorant that we did that was against the holy and perfect will of God. We stand in the exact same place as Joshua chapter 20. You see, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this, You've heard it says that you should not murder, but whoever, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So here's the truth. Here's what Jesus says. You've heard it said don't murder. Jesus says it's far worse than that. If you have ever been angry at someone, a.k.a. driven in traffic when it's raining in Florida. If you have ever called someone a fool, right? If you have ever had this spirit of anger come up in you, then you stand condemned. Whether you meant to or not, we stand before a perfect, holy, and pure God with the unable to cover our own sin. See, outside of the high priest, outside of the high priest, there is no salvation. In Numbers, as it, it talks about the city of refuge, and it says, the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, rescue the offender from the accuser, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge in which he has fled, and when he shall live there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge, to which he fled. The avenger of blood finds him outside of the boundaries of the city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer. He shall not be guilty of blood. In other words, if the person, if the offender left the covering of the city of refuge in the death of the high priest, then he was, he was, still, he was still liable for his guilt. Verse 28, for he must remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. 
But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. What does that mean for us? It means this. Here's the truth. Outside of the covering of the sacrifice of the blood spilt by Jesus on the cross, outside of Jesus Christ as our high priest, there is no salvation. There is none. It's the church's job to open the doors and be the place of refuge. But it is not the church's job to save. It's the church's job to point to the high priest, that we are forever indebted to the high priest, that we are forever covered by the blood of the high priest. Here is the gospel. It's not that you and I are bad and we need to do better. It's far worse. The gospel is this, is that we are dead and we cannot undie ourselves. The gospel is this, that we are exhausted. We're exhausted by trying to do better. And the only thing we get is more fatigue and more, more tired and more worn out. And we just find ourselves going, I'm dead and I can't undie myself. I am guilty of sin. I stand before the congregation confessing. I have recognized my brokenness and I confess. And it's the job of the church to go, come on in here. The church is not the answer. Jesus and Jesus alone is the answer answer the gospel is is that I'm dead in my sins and only by the stripes am I healed only by Jesus on the cross only by the death and resurrection of our high priest Jesus Christ is life found and I want to invite you to respond to that today I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and there's some in this room today that you have found you have found refuge you have found mercy and today Jesus Christ is heralding to you grace that what you deserve is death that what you get is refuge, that what you cannot earn is life on your own. And it's time today to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to take on the sacrifice of the high priest as your life. And if today, if you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus, to recognize your guilt, to confess your sins, and to surrender to Jesus as your salvation, would you raise your hand? And just extend it to the sky. This is not save you, but this is a way to just recognize and confess and surrender. You'd raise your hand. And what I want you to do is you raise your hand right now is just tell God, I surrender. I'm yours, Lord. I surrender. I am yours. I cannot, I, I cannot save myself. Only by the blood of the cross am I saved. With your hands in the air, I just want you to confess to the Lord that he is Savior. Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you. Lord, we love you that you've saved these men and women. Lord, we love you that you've created this place as a place of refuge and a place for us to just humbly come before you. God, that we as a church, that we exist to rest in your presence. God, that if we are healthy, then we are a caregiver. And if we are hurt, we better wave the white flag. God, save us. God, dwell amongst us just like the cities of refuge and the Levite cities with your presence dwell amongst us. God, we pray all this in your precious and holy name. Amen.